So, uh, Hussein, do you have any apologies to make? I have many apologies to make. Um, I'm sorry to my parents. Sorry to uh, everyone who's ever read any of my tweets. But there is related to that is I don't think it's necessarily all down to me. I don't think it's all down to me. I think it's like us as a collective group and this podcast, Trash Future, contributed a lot to this. So this is an official apology to everyone listening and everyone not listening for the word gammon. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't write this down because I was just too ashamed. But if you've been plugged into the news for the past week, it feels like, it feels like months. Well, it's, it is. It's because the word gammon went from a way to describe a disgusting way to eat ham to... Um, a, a, a sort of mock insult that we used to talk about the men who wanted to nuke everything because their wives don't sleep with them uh, to a slur being genuinely debated by uh, Julia Hartley Brewer and um, uh, 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 Brendan O'Neill. Our, our friend Brendan O'Neill. <laughs> our, our friend in O'Neill um, on, uh, on, on like fucking spectator radio. And it took the course of like an extended lunch break. Yeah. And um, I, I think on behalf of the entire podcast, we're sorry to every man whose uh, whose blood pressure was raised beyond dangerous levels because their complexion was compared to that of a ham. That's exactly the same as racism. <laughs> That's what racism is. It's when you make fun of someone for looking completely fucking stupid. But we're very sorry also that we've cheapened the political discourse in this country. This yeah. once great nation, home of beautiful poetic writers, Hume, uh, Orwell, home of all manner Orwell. of delicious cured meats. <laughs> Brissola. Yeah. Um and we've cheapened our, I feel that our podcast being part of this whole new leftist space, we've cheapened the discourse. But Not it's also discourse. shown but it's also shown how influential we're becoming. And it's all down to you. So we're no longer going to be using the word gammon on this show, mm. but we will instead be interchanging it with obscure anime references. So <laughs> From a month from now, we're all going to be debating whether being called Sailor Moon mm -hmm. is in fact violence. <laughs> um, my, my prediction is for a month's time, Hussein is going to be on Radio 2 debating Brendan O'Neill about uh, whether coffee is, in, is or is not in fact a soup. It is. <laughs> back once again to this episode for some reason that we still seem to be making and you still seem to be listening to of trash future the podcast about how the future if we do not implement fully automated luxury gay space communism is and will be trash that's the first time i've ever said it right on the first try Feel hell very yeah proud of nailed myself. that shit <laughs> <laughs> who from my from my left which means the bowl have we got in the end the bougie hackney flat today Hi, uh, it's me, Milo Edwards, coming at you live for the people in the room, but not live for all of you listening to this podcast from Moscow. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Milo underscore Edwards, as always. And I've been following all of these ham-related developments from the country on Earth, where <laughs> in many ways they love disgusting cured hams the most, the Russian Federation. <laughs> I was going to say, in fact, in, in, they could replace spectator radio with just ham radio, which is funny because it's a kind of radio. Uh, my name's Hussein Kizvani. This is the last day before Ramadan begins, where ham is haram always, but especially during Ramadan. <laughs> um, so I feel doubly ashamed, but I'm ready to atone for my sins this month, which includes poisoning the British political discourse and also referring to coffee as soup. It's not a fucking soup. Oh. <laughs> here's, a, here's an idea. For the whole period of Ramadan, we refuse to say the word gammon. Gamadan. <laughs> All right, that that got what it deserved. Uh, <clears throat> hi, I'm Carl Sharo, um, an online satirist and architect, and I'm getting about every other word in this conversation. Um, I'm not. You'll, you'll get this very quickly. I'm not a native English speaker, and I'm actually still struggling to catch up on the slang of the '80s. So <laughs> this is like I'm 30 years behind. 
But also, you, right. you probably also have like better things to do in your time than like listen to our dumb show. Yeah. Oh no, no, I listen to it all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, anyway, yeah. no sweat, so, Daddy. It's rad to have you on board. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's really it's uh, it's uh, I'm I'm honored to be here. It's a huge uh, learning experience. I'm trying to bridge, uh, you know, the gap between generations. <laughs> and um, yeah, I might stop occasionally to ask you for the meaning of a word or something like that. But yeah, we, I'm, might, I'm... we might stop occasionally to ask like how you know to get houses, <laughs> um, what to do with like you know how you get married. Just like life advice. Yeah, no, that's that's professional service, not advice. You have to pay for that, son. <laughs> that's exactly what my dad says. <laughs> Podcast yeah. appearance, that's free. I'm still Arab. I'm not giving you stuff for free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I guess, I suppose, unless we go to your house, in which case you'll like feed us till we die, right? Yeah, yeah, obviously. Generos- <laughs> generosity rules. So, um... Basically, uh, while Carl is an architect and satirist, he is also a... Uh, a Middle East commentator, and uh, the land of breaking news and analysis has continued to generate breaking news and analysis. Can you believe it? Yeah, absolutely. I should plug my book in now. My book Please. is coming up in uh, July, and then God created the Middle East and said, let there be breaking news and analysis. I mean, I have to say, the great thing about Western media's obsession with um, coverage, Middle East coverage, you know, and Orientalist tropes and all of that. It's it's like really good for business for me. <laughs> it's Always hustling. really great. Always hustling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what what would, how would Robert Fisk eat? <laughs> like, the, like the moment Lebanon yeah. becomes like a stable, like a stable democracy that doesn't seem to have like a weird tripod between like yeah. three different religions. I Robert Fisk no, will no, need I, to go to the job center. Totally, you know what? I my personally, I think like Western politicians would solve all the problems of the Middle East very quickly. My theory has been like long time now. It's actually Middle Eastern pundits and jour- journalists who are keeping the problems in there. That's their business model, you know. <laughs> you can they thank need, us later. They need this kind of uh, area and and people to explain to the West. You know, you have this, you have yeah. to understand the economics of it. Well, the um, follow the, the money. Of- Who's got all their money invested in breaking news and analysis? Well, it's um, it's it's mostly it's mostly dark news out of the Middle East recently. But one one thing that happened is uh, Iraq just elected a communist to its uh, legislature. In I think a northern town. Yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, this is really one of the interesting things that are happening that don't fall into the you know the step. There's you know there's a book right. Yeah. There's a book about Middle East policies and everything should follow the book. And then to make it easier for Western media, things should follow a certain pattern. That so a week before that we had the elections in Lebanon, right? And it was a very complicated result. Hezbollah made some gains, but also their worst enemies made some gains. And then the headlines next day is Hezbollah takes over Lebanon, you know, and it's the, Ira- the southern Lebanon the Iranian of domination of like it's going to extend to southern Europe, and everything has to be seen through the prism of that. And then again, once once again, I think Western media is like they're completely surprised by any unexpected developments in in in, in uh, the Middle East. So in Iraq, in this instance, and I think Muqtada Sadr, who's by the way, his his. Uh, it's obligatory to call him a firebrand Shia cleric. He's one thick boy. <laughs> yeah. That's all I know I mean, about Muqtada yeah. Asad. He yeah. is one thick boy. <laughs> <laughs> but but he's br- I, I think he's brilliant because he's kind of like breaking that sectarian mold, not necessarily out of like the goodness of his heart, but he's a player and in kind of like playing different sides. And by the way, he's already like announced he's quitting Iraqi politics seven times. Like every year, that's his annual... Jay-Z. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. I, is I know? I got 99 problems, but the Sunni ain't one. <laughs> See, the funny thing about that is that, like, you consider Jay Z to be modern music, but, like, we, like, our youngest listeners, like, listen to, like, fucking SoundCloud rappers. And I had to look up who, like, Little C was the other day. <laughs> I was just saying, it's uh, so the way that they're talking about Hezbollah, it's like it's the Bika Valley branch of momentum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yo, that's the thing I'm saying. Let's 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 have an uh, an iron alloyed alliance. Not to be confused with Lisbela. I um, this is like so. This is the extent of my Middle East punditry, which was I really wanted to piss off some people one day, so I 
made a mock-up Hezbollah Palace t-shirt and I put it on Twitter and I was just like, can someone make me one of these? And I had a bunch you of people make that, got, one. that got like really mad at me. But then there was like these teenagers who just slid into my DMs and was like, yeah, if you pay me 20 quid, I'll make you one and look authentic. <laughs> that would be sick. I would, I would absolutely love one of those. Edie, yeah. Edie, please, if you're listening to me. Can we all get one? <laughs> <laughs> but did you see there was an image? There was a great image that I tweeted. It was this um, uh, woman who's wearing the, the kind of da'abaya you know, and covering her head and her whole body, but it was bright red with a hammer and sickle in gold. And and it was like a product of this alliance between Muqtada Sadr and the communists. And it was like, it's always the thing about Arab communists is you don't have to choose, right? You, you don't have to make like, you allow the dialectical materialism to kind of manifest itself. And it's brilliant, you know? <laughs> Contradictions don't have to resolve themselves. <laughs> and, 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 you know, this is difficult. Like, it's, it's kind of a bit sad, but whenever a communist dies in an Arab country, because you can't have like a, a, a civil ceremony or a, or a secular ceremony. It has to be in a mosque or in a church. So you have all these people that only go to churches or mosques when someone dies, <laughs> that is that is basically a, a very long communist tradition. But I mean, it's like I think to me, for me, the the image kind of represented the sense of complexity, which I think it's it's fucking brilliant. It's coming back, you know, enough of the reductiveness. That was fantastic. So, what does um, I mean, if this is this is only one election in a country whose politics are fractious to say the best. So, what do you think this means, if anything? Well, I, I, I think it, it means several things because Iraq, in a way, on some level, is kind of following, because of the brilliance of the Americans, you know, after they invaded the country and then they put kids in charge of running it, yeah. you know, kids who had no prior experience, and then they wrote the constitution, did all of that. They hit on this brilliant idea is they modeled Iraq, the politics of Iraq, emerging Iraq on Lebanon. You know, the famously successful, <laughs> the famously peaceful, successful resolution of political divisions. And they went like, you know, we have to inject an element of communitarian representation into Iraqi politics. And then they, they kind of like, I think what we're starting to see now is people not playing by that. So you're not, not automatically voting along sectarian lines. And then you have players like Muqtada Sadr, regardless of whether you like him or not, he's bucking the trend, he's distancing himself from Iraq. So all sorts of things that you don't, ex you know, Western pundits don't expect him to do. And I think that just kind of injects a sense of dynamism. And obviously it takes a long time for these things to work out, but I think it's we're seeing a lot of interesting things that are happening. We're seeing a body emerging as a as a kind of a unifying figure. We're seeing a, a lot of internal trends, but I think what I feel personally is just people should kind of like step back a little bit and they give these countries a chance to develop and not fucking persistently like meddle in their elections and try to influence the outcomes. And then, and we can see positive things happen. I think the one thing that I want to mention about it is when you mention communism in Iraq, and a lot of people don't know this, it's like, oh, there's communists in Iraq. The Communist Party was the, the, the strongest political force in Iraq in the 40s onwards. And it played the leading role in, you know, kind of fighting uh, uh, British colonialism and, and, and imperialism. And uh, it could count on up to a million people, you know, it could bring in demonstrations and, and that sort of heritage doesn't disappear. And I think that's, that's one of the, the things I like to remember about it. And what, what this, uh, I mean, if we really want to model Iraq and Lebanon, what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to import some Druze. <laughs> no, but I, I think yeah. that's, I think that's, that's, that, that's exactly right. I, I don't know if this is exactly right. The fuck do I know? But it, it, that feels as though it's an almost optimistic outlook for uh, a, a region of the world that rarely gets any optimistic outlooks, especially from outside. Yeah. I, but uh, I want to sort of address something that is slightly less optimistic, um, which is what has been going on in Gaza for the last, well, I mean, A, for the last several days and weeks, or B, for the last several decades. There is often a protest at the uh, borders with Israel um, borders. They're not borders. Prison fences. <laughs> yeah. Prison fences. Yeah. Um, and this year, um, the response to them from the IDF has been particularly heinous. Uh, are, are you aware of sort of the, are you aware of the, the current numbers at the moment? The casualties, yeah. you mean? 
Yeah, yeah, of course. And 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 I think it's um uh, it's been particularly um uh, vicious this year. It's kind of an escalation of scale and I think there's there's a number of reasons that I've contributed to that. Um and, and and I think the only problem that I have with the prevailing narrative now is how much of that is linked to Trump's uh, embassy uh move, which I think <clears throat> is kind of more of a a symbolic thing rather than what actually triggers the event. Yeah. I think what we're saying is the situation has been years when Gaza under siege. And I have to disagree with a lot of people who say uh, people in Gaza are doing this out of desperation. It's not true. They're doing it out of hope because people who are in complete despair wouldn't actually do anything about it. They would surrender completely. And nobody willingly is going to die. It's just another, another trope that you see in the media that they're willing, willing dying. No, Israeli soldiers are choosing to kill them. They're not choosing to go and die. Mm-hmm. They're choosing to do something about their uh, dire situation. And mm-hmm. that's different completely from despair. So I think that kind of way of, of, again, representing it, that those people are so desperate and they're doing this irrational thing. No, they're choosing to actually act on the only form of uh, political action that they have available to them. And often that, like, that perspective... So I've had people in my kind of mentions over the past kind of couple of days, they're all kind of saying the same stuff. So sometimes it sort of borders the ridiculous, which is I had some guy today who... Um, was it racist duck? Racist, <laughs> oh, my friend racist duck. We have a history. Um, That's but, his at. We're not calling him racist duck. That's his yeah, at. He, so... You know, just a bit of backdrop. I did a story from my magazine that. that I work for about these kind of conservative, pasty dads. We're not allowed to use a G word on this show anymore. Um, who basically like pretend no. to be ducks on the internet. And I somehow ended up like hanging, like ended up in this kind of community of like m- middle-aged British men all living in like random rural towns in the country who just are united by the fact that they love ducks and they hate brown people. We can't say the G word anymore. We're going to start calling them mallards. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yes. The, the two um, genders, ducks and brown people. <laughs> so one of them, one of them basically said, you know, and you've probably heard this before. It's just like, oh, you know, these Palestinians, they weren't, um, they weren't innocent. They were agitating. They were agitating the Israeli army. So I was like, how would you go about like agitating like one of the most well-equipped armies in the world? Like, you know, you've got to have some serious firepower to do that. So he gave me two examples. The first one he said, like to a fence, obviously (laughs) (laughs) the first one that he was like, showed me these kids, like the sovereignty of Israel more than a rope tied to a fence. Um, the, these kids with like slingshots. Right. And we'll, we'll go onto this topic in a second because it becomes more ridiculous from this point. And the second thing he sent me was like, Oh, you know that they're sending firebombs on kites, right? And this is like ridiculous, like, you know. Th- but that's fucking brilliant. That takes such a level of skill. If you can yeah. actually rig a firebomb to a kite and manipulate it to actually deliver yeah. that is, I mean, when I was a kid, I would have loved to do yeah. that. Yeah. I, I mean, if any of these people that, ever just tried regularly flying a kite, it's challenging. <laughs> <enough. laughs> um, you know, those Afghan kids, they're pretty good at flying kites. And like, if they were smart enough to like attach, fire weapons onto them you know (laughs) what i love i love the symmetry of that you know like because the israelis uh it's like the kind of their winter collection now i guess or the spring collection so they have now these drones that fire tear gas canisters Mm. and that's kind of like the mirror image it's always the mirror image right like the very highly symbolic weapon that doesn't really isn't effective in anything and then the super sophisticated lethal technologically advanced weapon where that one is legitimate, but the other one is like all of a sudden all these soldiers have to freak out. What a fucking kite! We're yeah. gonna have to start shooting people now. What, what what you see the trope and the thing is you you see there's two I think related tropes that you see, uh, which is number one, which is that ah uh, we if it, it, it's it's a it, Hamas is using all of these civilians as human shields to advance its agenda. And number two, if the Palestinians were serious about peace, they would protest peacefully. You see those two tropes quite frequently, which I think is utterly fucking ridiculous because they are being made war upon every day by Israel, number one. And number two, the idea that people are organized. And this has a weird parallel with British politics almost, where the idea where people who are organized by a central body around a thing 
are seen as dupes by that thing because they couldn't possibly agree with its aims. No, but it's, it's serious. This, at that point, I mean, that's that's a very important point. It's this idea that people can be organized. You know, people will call you a cult, like I called you guys before we started. This. And then, hey, <laughs> sorry for that. We do sacrificing chickens as our own business. <laughs> we're still trying to work out you're, how to fly Is kites. that what you're doing to that chicken? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's like this idea that people, if you know, you can, they, they kind of give up their spare time, they get organized, there's a kind of a central authority and a discipline that's immediately suspicious. But in my own interactions on Twitter, which, 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 which I don't like to mention because I'm not, you know, as, as, as much of a Twitter person as Hussein is, and he keeps coming back. <laughs> Hussein online. I love being online. So much fun stuff like racist abuse. <laughs> like racist dogs. Racist dogs. So I've been getting this thing, like I tweeted one thing about, right? I tweeted one thing and I said like, Israel didn't give like, Palestinian is much of a choice. It's either the humiliation of prison or we're going to shoot you. And then I started like all these people kind of coming back at me and saying, they keep electing Hamas. They keep electing Hamas. And I'm like, yeah, they have functioning elections. Where, Maybe it's just because you, their merch is really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're missing the big story here. There are free elections and they're voluntary. You know, like the anger directed at them. They're not saying that Hamas is actually brainwashing them or whatever. They're actually accepting that people are voluntarily <laughs> voting for Hamas, whom I'm like completely against politically on a, on a kind of a, 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 a ideological level. But I understand, you know, the position that they play within that but, but struggle. But it's kind of as if there's like some fundamental problem with the idea that people are choosing to vote for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also you mm -hmm. might think like it's, the, the, there are extreme conditions being imposed upon them. And so they are choosing to vote for an extremist party. Like, it's, it, that doesn't seem that ridiculous to me. Yeah, I mean, whatever they think. I mean, I think the rise of Hamas was because of the, the, the bankruptcy of the PLO after years. There's many historic roots for it. But I think uh, the, the, the main thing is we're talking about genuinely free elections in which people are choosing their representative. And that's the force they think. And this is a moment of existential crisis for them, right? Like, like Gazan aren't going to go tomorrow and vote for the legalized marijuana party. <laughs> These are not the choices that they are. That's one cool Gazan. Cool one. Cool <laughs> that is one cool Gazan and his chicken. <laughs> and 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 that's they're not. That's not what their situation is. But the mere fact that they're recognizing that they're actually being voted in, and they're angry that they're being voted in, and and that's kind of like, you know, they're trying to take away the legitimacy of this 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 process. That's 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 a, a kind of a recognition of their legitimacy in a way mm. in the eyes of uh, the Palestinian public. I think there was another thing as well, which was, um, and I saw it on the way here, uh, these kind of pictures, and I'm not sure whether they're real or not, um, about like Palestinians who are basically getting paid to protest, right? Um, so. I think I, I don't know what newspapers are. It's either the Washington Post or the, or the Telegraph. Ah, the Washington Post and the Telegraph, two excellent progressive <laughs> magazines. <laughs> that definitely do not have uh, imperialist and racist <laughs> undertones. Democracy dies in darkness, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or, or democracy? Or, no, democracy dies in the toilet. I think you'll find. Or in our case, with, democracy is with, alive with, and well in Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> with fiery kites in yeah. the sky. Yeah. Um, Actually, can I but, can I yeah, interrupt I you just about yeah. the kites? Because I saw something amazing today about the kites thing. Speaking of how <laughs> terrifying these Palestinian kids with kites are, there was two like chud Israeli dudes who we, we might describe as being the color of a certain meat, um, <laughs> who uh, who decided to like get get one get one back on the Palestinians because you know the Palestinians have been, long too long of the Israelis suffered under the oppressive jackboot of the Palestinians. Um, so they decided to get one back on the on the scary Palestinian children by making their own fire kite and flying it over the border into Palestine. But they fucked it up and it crash landed into some <laughs> Israeli farmer's field and set it on fire and they all got arrested. Owned. Owned. The winds of God will carry my revenge to Palestine. Five minutes later. Ah, nevertheless. <laughs> the, the, the point I was trying to make, the point I was trying to make with that thing is not like you know, it's not really adding much credence to their point because, you know, you forget the fact that, well, Israel controls like, you know, the majority of their economy, right? They control the water supply. They control most of the land supply. Um, 
you know, it's it's effectively like a dead economy. So if you've got like, young people who are like, yeah, I can make, you know, I can make a bit of money just like hanging out at a protest, then like, I don't know, it just it just doesn't all. What I've kind of noticed in this period is that the arguments that have been made by the usual pro-Israeli side, and we know what the we know what those arguments are, like have sort of fallen into dead water. Like they they don't seem as effective as they used to be. I don't know whether they ever were effective or whether like people are just pissed off. And I sort of wonder whether that's like, whether like the Trump influence sort of plays into that, the fact that they're being so like obviously, you know, on one side, even though like American policy hasn't really changed that much. Um, And if that's the case, like, can we actually use this? Can this actually be used as a way to actually progress what's going on rather than it being in a quagmire? I mean, I'm not sure about that. I think that the, what's what happened to propaganda is it's become more fine-grained and that's a byproduct of not just social media, but like a wider cultural condition, so to speak, mm. whereby we're all kind of like our cycle of uh, reaction and outrage is like an hourly and daily basis. It's not like, we're not, we have to admit, we're not in an era of like people living, you know, with like these super big competing narratives. It's not the Cold War. We're all like the grain of all of that. It's the latest thing that's happened, you know, two, three hours ago, everybody's looking at the same video online or the same image or so the kind of there's the, the effort then to manage that propaganda both ways is much more kind of persistent and fine grain, by which I mean, you know, you're doing it like hour by hour. You're not sort of putting out a big narrative out there and, you know, like the old kind of myth that Israel is bringing civilization to the Middle East and all that kind of thing. And then we kind of leave it like that. It's kind of, you have to kind of continuously work with that image. And that has kind of two two sides to it. One is you can score more kind of um, uh, PR wins if you like if you're tr- if you're trying to be kind of countering uh, the narrative but the downside to that is like two hours later that's going to be forgotten so there's a sense of lack of persistence yeah. that used to exist historically i love being able to speak like that because you guys are kids and you don't remember these things <laughs> <laughs> and i'm the oldster i love being in this position in my days in my days <laughs> In my day, the, co- the communists were Russian. Damn it! <laughs> um, well, speaking of uh, of fine grain propaganda driven on social media, I actually recently learned that uh, the IDF and um, and 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 the Palestinians are actually clashing. It's not a one sided massacre because the IDF has exposed Hamas's tools for infiltrating Israel. <laughs> Owning the lips. These oh, yes. are very, very scary guys. They include destroying them with logic. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! How did we not think about this? Holy shit! I've got an idea. I've got an idea. Right? I've got an idea. So we drone a load of like Sam Harris books right into the West Bank. Just drop it down. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it's like it's like avengers but intellectual dark children <laughs> screaming israeli soldiers that their attacks are ad hominem yeah <laughs> and eventually they'll get by shooting at me you've already admitted you lost the argument yeah. eventually after they read all of ben shapiro's fucking fan fiction they'll become so like logically insane and their balls will be so big that the next time they go to the israeli border holding up their sam harris end of reason books fucking owned man <laughs> yeah that's it you have to own them the Hamas plans to own Israel with logic <laughs> uh, no, okay so they can be called the Weiss nationalists the fucking they'll hell be stopping, they'll be stopping <laughs> bullets like in midair like Neo just with logic <laughs> uh, so uh, the IDF the IDF helpfully has posted a poster of, of Hamas's tools for infiltrating Israel they didn't include logic I think which was a mistake it's, um, it's a meme. They, it's a starter pack. They have included rocks. Uh, everyone uh, rocks, presumably, uh, <laughs> which is the same as a fifty cal bullet. Uh, explosives, uh, arson kites, <laughs> like they fucking rock. <laughs> um, wire cutters. Uh, don't know why you could possibly need wire cutters. <laughs> Molotov cocktails, and then here's where, like, the first five were like at least you could understand kind of what they mean how they right? could be weaponized yeah. yeah the next four are fucking crazy <laughs> the next one is burning tires 
which I can because I guess they're creating smoke. So I guess we're dealing with the Hamas hundred first. But, but you know, the burning squad. tire thing is like a is like they're a biblical the thing, right? Springfield. It's like the burning chariots in the Old Testament and all of that. That's a biblical meme. Why, why are they objecting to that? Um, and then plagues of locusts. They, um, here's my. <laughs> Here's my favorite one. Uh, rope tied to fence. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds sounds more like a conceptual artwork rather than <laughs> a skew rope tied to fence. Rope tied to fence attempt 72. You can see all this, like this poor, it's probably this poor cousin kid who's into contemporary art, right? He takes his like coil of rope every day, goes out to the fence and ties one and looks at it, takes pictures, shares it on Instagram. And, and meanwhile, like the Israel are sending this top squad of forensic <laughs> investigators. Holy it's like, shit. what the fuck is happening on there? It's, it's like, holy shit, it's a rope. Quickly, get the wire cutters. No, then we're no worse than, then we're no better than them. We, we cannot use the ed- weapons the final, of our enemies. The final wire weapon cutters. Is, is a plum floating in perfume served in a no. man's hat. So basically what this is, is this indicates to me that the IDF thinks that Hamas is Wiley Coyote. Yeah. Either that, or they genuinely like are scared of every fucking B&Q in this well, no, country. Well, yeah. you, have to, you have to give it, to, and here's the thing, and this is where it gets a little bit serious, is the last two entries are children and disabled civilians, which makes you realize that the IDF is actually exactly as brave as American police. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, there's a whole program of rich cultural exchange between those two institutions. I yeah. mean, yeah. No, I've got to object to this. Benjamin Netanyahu will never be the man that Paul Blart Moorcock will be. <laughs> no, never, pa- ever. But it's, the, like, it's like both American police and the IDF are definitely are, are, are sort of frightened or intimidated <laughs> into shooting unarmed children, which is basically horrifying on both counts. I asked the suspect to produce his license and registration, but I was concerned that he was reaching for a rope tied to a fence, so I shot him 18 times in the head. I mean, but you know, the thing about this day is like, I I think it actually shows resourcefulness. Uh, I mean, when people ask me, what's the first, like, how do you learn cooking? What's the first recipe you learn? So actually the first recipe I learned was Molotov cocktails. And that was like 1981 in Lebanon, Civil War. I'm not going to go into the circumstances, (laughs) right? But but it's actually like it actually taught me the basics of cooking. Getting <laughs> <laughs> because you didn't. I'm not joking. You know, a lot of cocktails. If you don't get the more than cooking bacon, if you don't get the the measures right, it won't work. And that actually shows resourcefulness and discipline. They should be applauded for that. You know, any kid in my book. If my kids grow up to try to make their own like homemade Molotov cocktails at the age of 13, I'll be proud of them. This is also why I find like, you know how you have all these stories about like bombers who like their bombs like fuck up, right? Like, and it always turns out to be the same story, which is that they just didn't know how to make it because they got the proportions wrong or they used the wrong type of like concentrated chemical. And it all turned <laughs> yeah, out to be like, made like, a brownie or something. like teenagers or like early 20 somethings who are just like massive fail sons. They don't know how to cook, mm-hmm. they don't know how to clean. They've never seen detergent in their life before this moment. <laughs> and they're like, you know, and ISIS is like, okay, you've got to get the measurements precisely right if you're going to do this. And you've got this tucking teenager that's just like, yeah, whatever, mate, fucking. <laughs> But this is this is actually brilliant. It's like basically the the, the shittiness of this generation is yeah. actually preventing a lot of terrorist action. <laughs> That's just fucking a brilliant insight. As a man, don't who- fucking teach this generation how to cook. Don't even give them any sense of discipline. As a man who still struggles to cut an onion, I can guarantee oh, wow. MI5 who are listening to this, but I'm not going to do anything. Because I just can't do it, and I'm too lazy. <laughs> well, like, to to close, Wait, to no, close let's, out. Let's trick disaffected youth into learning how to cook by replacing <laughs> bomb making instructions subtly with like instructions for making a delicious lemon drizzle cake. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, so, it didn't go off, but it was well, absolutely did, delicious. Weren't there like copies of the anarchist cookbook that were put onto the internet by like government agencies, which were deliberately wrong to basically like find people who were going to try build weapons, but were evidently too stupid to be able it's, to do it's them. like just like, the instruction just like take a bowling ball put in a candle like you've got a bomb <laughs> <laughs> that's also that that you build it you build a machine and just a flag comes out that says bang <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that is true but at the same time i'm i'm personally and I, I know you guys probably don't agree with that but i'm like very wary of 
kind of investing too much political capital into trying to control media narrative because media narrative has its own internal logic and it's not something that people are interested in. Political radicalism and necessarily capable of uh, influencing outright. So the best that you can get is you might get uh, a kind of instantaneous uh, uh, accommodation. And I think that actually, in a way, defangs you if you're trying to be radical. And it, it kind of just kind of make, makes you, in a sense, sound a little bit whiny. So I, I'm kind of like, I'm worried doing that because ultimately we become too obsessed with what the narrative is about internally so i think i want them to actually say what they want to say i don't want to be able then to critique that because by doing this you're you're able to kind of strip away the ideological layers and get people who are interested in polit- radical politics to understand how the dynamics work i'm much more interested in that than uh the washington post or the telegraph being woke right? Because the moment we get to that, and that's happening, I mean, that's happening a lot because they realize there's a kind of like a market for it and people are kind of more radicalized now, but it becomes an attempt at pacification. And for me personally, that's not really the battle. The battle is actually kind of coming up with the counter-narrative, not kind of getting these concessions uh, from the media. And ultimately, the uglier it is, the better it is for you to be able to then build a counter narrative uh, against it as opposed to it becoming just a kind of symbolic accommodation ultimately okay that makes democracy sense dark, d- democracy dies in dark hot soup <laughs> <laughs> alright it's coffee um, so I want to go on now to a uh you're not going to cut out all these like serious monologues I'm doing, uh, are no, it's you? It's just the chicken stuff. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm now wanna, want uh, to transition to a uh, viewer, a uh, viewer, a uh, listener question. By the way, I've, I've, I've decided I'm going to start doing more questions just interspersed in a regular show. So send questions to my curious cat or the trash future curious cat. Either one, really. So uh, an anonymous listener asks, I studied IR and was very happy to hear you say in a recent podcast that it's incredibly fucking stupid. Something I couldn't agree with more. Are there any good IR scholars or articles you'd recommend? On a serious question, uh, oh, sorry. Okay, that was a serious question, so I'll follow it up with, would you rather bang Princess Peach or Birdo? Birdo. Yeah, Birdo. She's <laughs> the only, I mean, Birdo. Uh, Yoshi's female counterpart who has like a giant snout that's like a foot in circumference. I don't I know any of these people. What are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so I think Birdo is the consent, Birdo, and I don't know what you're talking about is the consensus. Um, on the IR field, yeah. that's a tricky one. I, I wouldn't be having sex with either of them because I'd be busy tying a rope to a fence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think with the IR thing, there's a lot of misunderstandings about it again with... Um, stop me if I start to sound preachy. It's uh, IR isn't intrinsically problematic. I think there's a world order post-World War II that's based on certain assumptions. Key among them is the idea of state sovereignty, Right. That is a very critical idea. That is very crucial to how IR functions. When people say this all doesn't work, it's shit, it's actually it works. It works in, in principle, it doesn't work in practice because particularly since the end of the Cold War, the West in particular has been taking a legal role in dismantling the logic of state sovereignty. And state sovereignty is the only mechanism that we can have now of international representation, any chance of getting any notions of international relations theory, IR theory working, and kind of enabling that to uh, ultimately what you want out of it is to prevent things from sliding into outright conflicts. What you see happening in Syria, for example, which is a consequence, if you want to dig back into the roots of it, of... um, Uh, a kind of this Western tendency starting from Yugoslavia and onwards to kind of claim that a humanitarian narrative gives them uh, a kind of an overriding authority to uh, uh, go over the United Nations, go over state sovereignty, and then the introduction of uh, the right to protect and all of these aspects. What they do ultimately is they weaken the basis of how our international paradigm is built today, right? And that is really the problem. So today, it's like there's no point standing up and saying, this is all shit, we don't want to do anything about it. For me, politically, what you need to be saying is we need to actually go back to defending state sovereignty. Mm. That is really an important thing. 
it's a concept that's really not fashionable, mm. like not in liberal circles. Like Seventy nine fashionable. Circles. Yeah, but it's actually a really important foundational concept because the assumption is state sovereignty comes from the people within the nation. But once you can't start talking about a, a global constituency, that is, there's no mechanism for representation for that. You know, an American can't have a say about what's happening in Syria because the world is not structured like that. And I think I, the one thing that we can do now is to kind of insist on the importance of sovereignty for me personally. Hmm. Well, I think in I think that's that's basically right. Um, I think if you want, in terms of articles, you can read. Well, okay, look, this letter writer has probably already read everything I would recommend. Um, in terms of, I think if you want to think about IR in terms of state power and have to want to understand how international institutions are sort of also extensions of state power, you really can do no better than going back to Kenneth Waltz. And looking at a book like Man, the State, and War, or Theory of International Politics. These are very dry. I suggest you read a summary. Um, if you want... Me, myself, and I are. If you, want, <laughs> if, you want, if you want something a little bit shorter, and it's a little more up-to-date, I think you should look at the article, and this is often free online, uh, Anarchy is What States Make of It, by Alexander Wendt. Mm -hmm. uh, it's quite good. I should actually read more IR and less manga. <laughs> um, all I can think about is like Shonen Jump references. Um, but you know what? Like in terms of popular stuff, um, Pankaj Mishra's Age of Anger, I think is quite good. Maybe it's not necessarily like an IR book. It's kind of like a mixture of like literature, politics and global affairs. But I think he's got a good grip of the big trends that are affecting societies. And even though it is like a bit bougie at times, and it is like a bit kind of... Uh, I don't know what the best way to describe it as. I think it's like a bit whimsical at times. But I think it's a decent, you know, it's a decent like, you know, train read or bedtime read or whatever. And I think it kind of really helped me think about stuff. The other thing is actually on Riley's bookshelf, right? It's called The Story of O by Pauline <laughs> Rick McKay. None um, of these books it's, are it's mine. A great, it's a great bit of literature about international affairs and absolutely nothing else. Well, the story of O. Actually, right beside that, I have one of the few books in this house that I do own, which is <laughs> Afghanistan by Thomas Barfield, which is an excellent study of the history of that particular country. I strongly recommend it. Anyway, shall we move on to all the other shit we've got going on? Or Milo, famous idiot, do you want to recommend an IR book? <laughs> <laughs> no. Sorry, Milo, I didn't mean to laugh so loudly about that. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's all right. I I know my place. Any 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 IR recommendations or book book recommendations generally? Something from classics? I'm just I'm just not a fucking nerd. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, classics. Anything yeah, by you love God Virgil, Virgil so much. You love Virgil so much. Famous yeah. hack Virgil. Why don't I marry him? Oh wait, I would if he wasn't dead. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually, I actually think Homer's Homer's better. He's more big dickhead in the world of uh, <laughs> epics. Big, big, big dick poet Homer. <laughs> Huge um, dick poet. So the catalog of ships, more like the catalog of hell. Yes, Russell Group graduate university students on a podcast, guys. So on um, one thing, uh, Carl, you're uh, absolutely uh, excellent about, and I recommend people like if they are introducing themselves to your reading, I recommend they look at these first. Is you're excellent at writing about the West as though it's being written about, like by a Western uh, journalist writing about the Middle East. <clears throat> and um, the UK is about to celebrate the second is about to celebrate the second anniversary of its independence. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, basically, I forgot from um, the introduction to say that I'm actually an Occidentalist. <laughs> and, I, and I don't take that flippantly. I genuinely moved over here because um, I love the way of life. I love the authentic ways of the, the natives, various pink you meats know? you can buy from the <laughs> store. <laughs> and Absolutely. I wanted to be like with um, Western people and understand their culture and really learn from them. And <laughs> that took me to sort of becoming one of the greatest Occidentalists alive today. And um, I do lots of lectures in the Arab world to introduce, I'm passionate about the subject. Um, and I like to introduce, you know, the Western area, which is rarely heard about, of course. It doesn't dominate the media and the news or anything like that in the, in the Middle East. And um, I think where you're going with this is uh, I, was, I'm, I was fortunate to be in this country 
uh, when it gained it, its independence um, uh, in 2016. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, the famous, <laughs> the famous, the famous War independence, of independence, right? Yeah, when and, Independence Day two was released. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, what I love was how at the time everyone thought 2016 was like the worst year ever, and now you can look back on it with such rosy eyed, like things weren't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and it's basically was like no it's it's like basically this article that I wrote that came out of this idea that Britain is finally gaining its independence and we're like how come you know and before that like Brits were saying like how come like every nation in the world has like an Independence Day we don't have an Independence Day and I'm like yeah because they fucking got their Independence Day out of you you were occupying them and but I love that metaphor and I was like what's gonna happen next right so I was like start looking at the scenarios what happens post independence like you're at Nigeria India Lebanon all these countries what happens post independence obviously these countries have been colonized for a very long time not the case of Lebanon it was only 19 years but still <laughs> uh, and, and then things don't work immediately right so they're gonna have economic problems they're gonna have political problems um so what happens, right? You see the kind of the occupying power coming back to intervene again, economic collapse. So I kind of tried to like see, foresee these things happening and, you know, getting like an economic crisis and then India stepping in <laughs> to rescue Britain <laughs> with an aid package and then Nigeria and Pakistan's sending in like a peacekeeping force <laughs> to separate Remainers and Brexiteers. Uh, and, and that was really fun to read, uh, to, to write, actually. And, and yeah, I, I, I just loved that whole parallelism between the idea of Britain gaining its independence and actually the fuckery that happened after the rest of us got their independence. Well, on, on the subject of fuckery, I have in front of me a Telegraph article. Oh, yes, <laughs> a very way, broad topic the, the, the this week. Telegraph. Um, this is earlier this month, a guy mm. called Paul Carter, who is definitely not probably ham. <laughs> Um, wrote an article where I can only imagine he was rock hard and just beat red in the face from high blood pressure. Could an army coup remove Jeremy Corbyn just as it almost toppled Harold Wilson? <laughs> so um, Carter writes, uh, basically uh, uh, on parallels with the idea that the army may, you know, topple ha Jeremy Corbyn. It genuinely did conspire to topple Harold Wilson for being too leftist in the 60s. Um, and so this is basically this guy just fantasizing about the yeah the kids like him so he's gonna fucking die. <laughs> it's like oh my god, you need to fucking just, relax. Just jacking it to a picture of Sir Jock Stero. So <laughs> he says first things would need to get pretty bad. Certainly, should investor confidence collapse, the economy unravel, and unemployment rise, then an unpopular leader intent on ruling Trident out, ambiguous on NATO, and implementing a defense diversification swords into plowshares policy would no doubt raise eyebrows with the armed forces. <laughs> God, imagine if investors had lost confidence in the UK. Imagine if that had happened. Right. Um, so we get this idea that because Jeremy Corbyn isn't going to just preemptively nuke anyone who's rude to Britain, uh, that the, yeah, arm the army is going to get rid of him. You know, the funny thing is, and that's why how we got talking about my article, because I actually predicted that scenario in my very satirical article and then it's great and then to see the telegraph and pieces like that right these, <laughs> these things seriously because I, I was genuinely thinking about it, thinking like if corbyn does come to power what's going to happen you know you're going to have this like foreign powers trying to like oust him and then maybe feed the rebellion in the north and uh, <laughs> <laughs> china funds <laughs> china funds and, and then, and then, so that was all the fancy. And today I read this thing that the EU is actually insisting on very strict terms and negotiations because um, they want to prevent a, a, a Corbyn government from implementing anti-free market legislation in the UK. <laughs> uh, the European Union famed organization friendly to socialism. <laughs> yeah, no, so it's really like, there's been like an expose today that it's basically they're, they're, they're trying to kind of prevent uh, Corbyn government from, from basically initiating anti-free market legislation. Anti, it's like they say anti-free market legislation as if it's like some form of discrimination. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How dare you discriminate hey, against the free market? Free market is a slur. <laughs> <laughs> um, Capitalists is a slur. 
I mean, these are, the same, racial these are the same people who think that neoliberalism is either a massively insulting term or a totally meaningless term. Somehow both at once. Yeah. But um, so the, the other set of justifications for uh, a, an army rebellion against Corbyn here is, are pretty funny. Um, we could also assume that this scenario includes security services reorganization, the abolition of private schools, and a referendum on the monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, that's what that's what will really get the army going the abolition of private schools <laughs> like oh no, they, they've they've you mean eaton's no longer a charitable organization is gonna Not have to pay taxes falls. this is a Nuke bridge them. too far <laughs> i mean it's just just this is utter this is this is just fantasism this is just as e, just as this eu anti anti free market um a legislation perspective is hitting Corbyn from the soft left. This is the same fantasy from the yeah, hard from right. right. Yeah. No, but I mean, this is what's so brilliant about this moment that we're living in. It's like everybody's become so unhinged. You know, it's like just the mere thought of someone like Corbyn coming to power is just like producing this most beautiful of absurdist writing, right? There's all <laughs> these fantasies. It's like, you, you, like, do you remember, like science fiction was at its best when America like was afraid of aliens invading them or like the cold war all that kind of thing. So all this deep fear and uncertainty is producing <laughs> absolutely beautiful fiction in journalism. <laughs> uh, we, we go on. Um, ahem. For any modern day coup to work against a radical labor prime minister, a comparable charismatic figurehead would be required. <laughs> Even assuming a plausible unelected leader was found, possibly Daniel Craig. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I want Roger Moore. <laughs> I want Bond to save me on the moon rover from the evil socialist grandpa. Roger Moore is way more charismatic, to be fair. <laughs> would they really want to challenge Despite being Cor dead. Would, would they really want to challenge Corbyn's 1.4 million Facebook followers with a depleted army of less than 80,000 soldiers? <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Um, this is beautiful it's stuff. Right? Wait until they so, see the rope that Momentum have got tied to a fence. <laughs> <laughs> so this, They'll be quaking in their boots. The very idea... It's, it's, it's bizarre. The very... It's, this, this is why I think the sort of the, um, the alliance between... Um, sort of the reactionaries and the people they're trying to mobilize is so crazy is that they think that everybody in the country has a very emotional tie to Harrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? Oh no. If you, if, if oh no, if you, if, if you reduce the, the sovereign grant given to princess Michael of Kent, I'm going <laughs> to fucking kill my neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is this is this is amazing. But you know, it reminds me. All of this thing reminds me. Of like, I mean, I have to say, it's people ask me a lot on Twitter. It's like, what? Why do you live in the West if you hate it so much and you keep asking the same it? thing? <laughs> and it's like, I'm like, my answer is like, yeah, and 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 it's like you're right. Um, I I criticize the West a lot, but the only reason why I live here is because I want to observe its collapse close by, you know, it's like a, <laughs> it's like ringside seats. <laughs> right? Of course, I want to be here now. And obviously, it's not true. The West is not collapsing. Exactly right? how I feel about Russia. <laughs> we'll edit that out, right? Because <laughs> my friends in Russia will be upset. So, <laughs> um, by the way, I'm like, I'm sure you know about all of this, but um, there's this conspiracy theory about me online that I'm like a paid Russian agent, and um, I, there's the I, same conspiracy theory about oh, just us. Like me and Riley, <laughs> and allegedly because um, I used to appear on Russia mm -hmm. Today, and 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 also it's like, uh, um, oh, you're Jonathan Pye. Now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. I didn't find out what his real yeah. name was. Do you and, have a list of logical fallacies <laughs> in your pocket? Are you a member of the intellectual well, dark web? The English language is much better. <laughs> the reverse intellectual dark web. <laughs> but 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 this is but this is sophisticated, right? I was like sent to like an advanced KGB in the in the in the in the last days of the Soviet Empire. I was sent to an advanced KGB run satirical school. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Right. It's like the upright instead of the upright citizens brigade, it's the upright comrades brigade. <laughs> Where me and the rest of comrades satire divides into two categories, my friend: lampoons and owns. 
we were all trained in the high art of like satire to undermine the West from within, right? And we were taught like I wasn't even funny when I was when I was a teenager. And then they, they we had special instructors, special Russian instructors that taught us in the ancient ways of British wit, <laughs> just so we can undermine undermine the empire. Anyway, so, while you were going out on dates, I was studying satire with the KGB. <laughs> <laughs> now you have the temerity yeah. to come to me for help. Yeah. You go and have fun. I have all these volumes of <laughs> Laurel and Hardy to go through. <laughs> so, so that is a, but the whole thing is like from 2016 on again. It's like it's like it's just such a kind of mental collapse of everything. And I love when that point when like from my position as a Middle Eastern person, like Westerners were always like, you have to respect democracy and voting and human rights and democracy and voting and you have to vote and you have to stop your violent ways. And why are you Arabs backwards? Just start voting and elections and things like that, right? And then one vote doesn't go their way. All Westerners go, Fucking hell, we want a coup now. We want the CIA to remove Trump. What's happened? It's like everything is out of the window. I'm like, wait, guys, what happened? You used to always say like democracy takes a long time to work and you have to have faith on democracy and elections. What happened now? Like one vote didn't go your way. Sarah Silverman is like, let's have a coup. Let's get rid of like, we want the CIA. And then all of a sudden, like the CIA became the good guys, right? Liberals are like, the CIA are the heroes. The FBI, famously oh. the FBI, you know, <laughs> created by J. Edgar Hoover, the most objectionable creature ever to walk this earth, right? Becomes this enlightened vanguard of liberalism and humanism and human rights. And Trump is the enemy and we let's marshal oh together. God. I just realized, you know what? You know what American liberals want? They want the CIA to do for America what they did for Iran in the 50s. They want to restore, and especially with the royal wedding coming up, they want to restore Queen Elizabeth to the throne of America. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, but that you're joking now, but there are people seriously now, there's a movement going on. There's like, aren't we better off? Why didn't we have, you know, our independence? Are we better off getting the royalty? It's just no, no, but it's like, all of this thing is just absolutely phenomenal. The other one was, it's like Western liberals were for decades lecturing us. It's like, why do you Arabs believe in conspiracy theories? Why is everything everybody's fault, but not yours? And I'm like, I started feel after years of hearing this, I started feeling like, yeah, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm like deeply paranoid. Why am I always playing like blaming imperialists? Maybe yeah. they did it for love. Why is like somebody, you know, why, why am I blaming the American embassy in Beirut? And I'm like, they're lecturing me. And I'm like, by weekly, like I started, my, I have to say, you know, my, my, my resilience started to weaken. And then one election doesn't go their way. What's their explanation? Russia did it. It was a Russian conspiracy. And I'm like, what is it about Western culture that makes people believe in conspiracy theories? <laughs> <laughs> It's a great monologue, but that's also one reason why you'll never get the coveted spot on SNL. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, SNL, man, before tonight, I wasn't sure that now one people are allowed to do podcasts. I think you're a trailblazer. Like, when Riley asked me, do you want to do this podcast? And I'm like, are you sure non-white people are allowed to do podcasts? I'm allowed to do host we- one these days. It's mad. <laughs> it's mad. And I go, I, go, I go down Hackney on my way home and I only get racially abused once or twice. <laughs> It's a completely different world. It's crazy. Oh, totally. Usually it's me doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm out when, here. When you're not distracted by the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, out, I'm out here calling you Brazella. <laughs> hey, Chorizo. Chorizo, <laughs> get out of here. This is Hackney. This is Hackney. We only eat Donna kebab. Uh, Brooklyn or London. Oh, I'm walking here. See, you find that funny, but that's literally like what fucking like this fucking place is. I mean, no, no I mean, I look Broadway market. Brief, brief digression. Yeah, they say Hackney's the Brooklyn of London because I fucking hate them, and, and they should all white turn themselves here. inside out and then get flung in a catapult into the sun. All of them who say that, I just want it to be the Brooklyn of London in the sense of being able to say, "I'm walking here." 
because I just really I want to be an Italian American. Market. I didn't see a single broad. <laughs> 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 what is this? <laughs> <Hit>. <laughs> that's a that's a classic hit. Nice hit. Yeah. Um so before we uh before we before we close out, um I do want to uh finally talk about uh Liverpool, a certain football club that is the socialistest football club <laughs> of all. Because they've had some, there's been some news about Liverpool recently, hasn't there? Yeah, so this is the backdrop to this, is like Riley's been trying to organize this for like months now, you know, and and, and every time he's like, what about that day? And I'm like, dude, Liverpool are playing. <laughs> and you know, what we recognize is like dual monsters. It's a card, <laughs> it's a card game. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm genuinely. I need the translator. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. It just as confused as everyone else. Yeah, but, but I'm still loving playing the role of the elder statesman here. <laughs> uh, um, it's better than the new statesman. Statesman, statesman, statesman. When we recorded in Moscow, we had to literally stop the recording about ten times to explain to my friend Genya what the fuck we were talking about. Oh God, yeah, there's this guy called Matt Hancock. Yeah, so so the back up to this and it's like it's Liverpool is massively popular now but uh, I hate to sound like a hipster but I've been supporting them since the early 80s you know this like geeky kid in uh, Civil War Lebanon early 80s um, and there was like you couldn't get it on the internet or anything the internet was invented only like later what was it like <laughs> what? what was it like before <laughs> what so, was it like Jesus Christ, you must have just been so, bored all the time. Yeah, I mean, you imagine just following football by going to the shop every week to buy a magazine that was printed in like black and white that told you how Liverpool did the week before. And occasionally, you get like a game recorded on VHS about a month later. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. I heard that the only way you could tweet back then was to fly a kite with an explosive into the sky. <laughs> now we had this like little magical yellow squares uh, that they were a bit sticky. Are you familiar with these things? When we write to, used to write a message on yeah, them a and pass tweet. it in, in class. That's actually how I honed my tweeting skills. <laughs> <laughs> Passing notes around in class. <laughs> <laughs> and and basically, like people ask me, so we've been supporting Liverpool since the early eighties, and 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 two reasons, right? Liverpool was the biggest club in the world in the early eighties, and the second reason, which is more important, Liverpool was at the forefront of kind of opposition to Thatcher's policies in the eighties, and it's always, I mean, it's this kind of paradox about Liverpool. It's a city built on slavery, but as well that has like a a, a kind of. A, amazing leftist working class culture to it. And you go to Anfield, the Liverpool stadium today, and it's actually embedded right in the heart of the working class area. But Liverpool was a kind of at the forefront of, you know, the left tendency and all that kind of thing, the opposition to Thatcher's policies, and they were properly red. They don't just wear red like those fuckers in Manchester. They're actually properly red. And, um, I think it's it's kind of a, for me as a leftist who's completely materialist, it's a sign of the end of times and coming of the apocalypse that Liverpool are going to win the Champions League again this year. <laughs> oh, excellent! Um, it's good. So on on that, do you think maybe we can get uh, get Nate to play the uh, "You'll Never Walk Alone" as our outro? Oh my god! But you gotta leave my voice over it, like my sobbing, weeping. With an ISIS techno <laughs> remix. Well, <laughs> then before before we um before we 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 trigger the song, then I might take this opportunity uh to thank everyone for listening. Uh, I might want to take this opportunity to say, uh, Hussein and Milo, you're here all the time. Uh, but to Carl, I still thank don't know you, why. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you guys. Despite. Despite all the nonsense <laughs> with, with, with with the sacrifice and the racial abuse of Hussein, <laughs> every time every time I come every time I come down here, it's just something I'm used to. I see Dave every all the weeks. Like, hey, what's up, Dave? It's like, what's up, you packy bastard? It's fine, you know. It's normal. <laughs> and finally, to thank uh, Nate, our producer, who is at in these deserts on Twitter. Please follow him and listen to his podcast, Hell of a Way to Die. He's a troop, so you have to salute every time. You have you to, every to time you listen to his podcast, you have to salute. Yeah. It's the law. Um, 
and the also whole duration to thank <laughs> to thank Jin Sang for our th- well for the beginning theme song of this episode. Here we go. You can find it on Spotify. And to thank Liverpool and Carl for the end theme of this episode. You'll never walk alone. Thanks. Thank you. Goodbye. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end. Of a stone, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a love. Walk on.